Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Sasha DeJulian, professional climber, world champion, writer, activist, and philanthropist. She has accomplished multiple first ascents and over 30 first female ascents around the world. Sasha is a graduate from Columbia University, serves on the board of the Women's Sports Foundation, and just this week released her first book, Take the Lead, Hanging On, Letting Go, and Conquering Life's Hardest Climbs. In this riveting episode, Sasha shares her journey from climbing at the age of six to becoming a world champion. We talk about achieving seemingly impossible goals, like her most memorable climb in South Africa, how to work through fear and failure, and the importance of confidence and courage. She shares her struggles as a teenage girl in the competitive male-dominated climbing world, including criticism, disordered eating, and negative comments from colleagues and social media. We also discuss her mental preparation strategies, emphasizing the importance of visualization and breathwork, along with her strategies for overcoming negative self-talk and maintaining a positive mindset. Lastly, Sasha shares her current projects, including the creation of Send Adaptogenic Superfood Bars to make organic, gluten-free, vegan, high-quality nutrition available to all. This was such an incredibly inspiring conversation, packed with so many learnings. It is an absolute must-listen. I hope you enjoy. And if you want to try her bars, Use code SashaFam, that's S-A-S-H-A-F-A-M, for 15% off on sendbars.com. Enjoy. Sasha, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to meet you, a fellow Boulderite, which I said we should have been doing this in person, but I'm just so excited to talk to you. I was been on your Instagram account and truthfully doing it at night before I'm going to bed. And it's giving me so much anxiety looking at your videos. <laughs> I'm like, you are amazing. Oh, thanks so much. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. Equally, I look at your Instagram and I'm like drooling at every <laughs> recipe and wishing that I had those skills. Amazing. Well, that's there's so much to get into. And I feel like this could be such a long conversation, but I want to start with your foundation. And first, what got you into climbing? My um, brother's birthday party at a local climbing gym in, um, I was six years old. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in a um, town called Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. And he had his birthday party at a gym called Sport Rock. Uh, My family is Canadian by roots and very into, you know, winter sports and organized team sports. Didn't really have any idea what rock climbing was short of it being a birthday party venue, but I loved it. And it was like me and my brother and his hockey team and his friends from school. He's a year older than me. And something just kind of like clicked for me. I was doing a lot of other sports at the time. And so I just saw it as a hobby and the employee working in the climbing gym birthday party was like to my mom, which she probably said to every mom, <laughs> uh, your daughter has a great natural ability for climbing. You should bring her back for the junior team program. And so I started going like Wednesdays and Saturdays throughout that year that I was six. And when I was seven, I walked into the gym. There was a youth regional championship being held. And the gym was closed and I just wanted to climb. And the organizers are like, well, she can compete, but you know, you can't go on to the next round, which is youth nationals at the time. Like climbing was even smaller of a sport and very, very niche. So I won my category in 11 and under, and that's how I stumbled into the competitive realm of what rock climbing competitions even looked like. And then it kind of was the catalyst that then from there I started competing for the next decade and a half of my career. So at what point did you go from doing competitions in the gym to getting outside? Because I imagine that's a pretty big, I mean, it's from an outsider, that sounds like a pretty big difference and a whole other level of fear. Was that a big deal? What did that look like? 
Yeah. As a youth climber, my team coach would take us out on like weekend trips to places like the New River Gorge and the Red River Gorge. But my main focus was plastic climbing because that's the venue that competitions take place. And it wasn't until I was around 16 that I started climbing outside more. And that was namely because of a boyfriend that I had who was a pro climber. Always the boyfriend. (laughs) I know. I know it's so cliche, but like uh, he was a pro climber from Norway and he was my first real boyfriend. And um, we would go, I actually at 16, I went to Spain on my own with him and a group of friends who are still pro climbers today and still friends. Um, And we went climbing in like the Catalonia region. And then I think that by the time I was like 18 was when I really started doing more climbing trips outside. And as I loosened my grip on competition climbing and kind of satisfied the goals that I had within that realm, I started then transitioning my career to focus on bigger first ascent and first female ascent trips around the world, strictly in the outdoor arena. You have so many first ascents and experience of that. What comes to mind of that most memorable first ascent for you? Well, my first ascent that I ever did was in South Africa in this area called Waterfall Boven. And there is this climb that the entire trip was honestly really cool for me. I was 19 years old, had never been to that part of the world. We integrated like going on the kind of cliche tourist thing of going to Kruger National Park and seeing all these incredible animals. And I was with two National Geographic photographers who are with me to document for Adidas and Red Bull, my climbing trip. But the photos and nature that we were exposed to was just so memorable. And even that zone, I haven't actually been back, but having this climb and having almost like this blank canvas of possibility and not knowing if it's possible or not, but kind of that whole process of like trying something, it feeling seemingly impossible and then working together and whittling down little sections of it, almost like a live jigsaw puzzle where you have all of these pieces and you're like, I don't know if I can like manage to fit them all together. And then one by one, you start putting pieces. And then as you have that corner piece, then like the middle starts becoming easier to digest. So I think that that exposure to that process was really incredible to me since a lot of my expertise before that was on plastic and plastic is so much different. It's like a human is setting the climb for you and sure it may not be possible because of some, I don't know, like space between holds that's not actually thought out so well, but generally I was competing against other people and seeing them progress. So now being in this state where it was me and the wall, that's really what started captivating me more about outdoor climbing than indoor climbing. It was like, if it's to be, it's up to me. And I really liked that process. Oh, I mean, the amount of mental preparation that goes into that, I'd love to get in, but maybe before getting there, you know, so much of climbing as and as I started out was like, this seems so scary to me. It's giving me anxiety. It's getting over that fear. And so would you say that as a kid, you were someone who was fearless always? Was this something that kind of grew as you started climbing? Where did that come from? That's a great question. Um, Climbing and heights never really seem to bother me so much. I do get fearful still of exposure and feeling like very, very alone on the wall when I'm high above my Blair and there's maybe like a vast mountainscape below me where I feel like the extremities, like the wind and just irrational fear can creep in of like, if I fall 99% of the time I am falling when I'm climbing. And that's kind of debunking a common myth of like the safety parameters within climbing. If you're operating your gear and you know how to trust it, it is actually a very safe sport and practice. 
And then obviously it's inherently risky and and there's human error and rock fall as well. But as a kid, I grew up on a climbing team of kids older than me. I was the youngest one and my kind of friends were like 12 to 16 when I was like nine. And so I feel like that was really motivating to me since I was always the youngest and the one that needed to improve to reach to their level. So I was just always kind of trying to like get there and thinking about my aspirations there versus like what could maybe hold me back. So I think as a kid, yeah, maybe climbing was a natural fit. And how about from your parents' perspective? What was their level of, because you had to have, I would I would think, so much confidence plays so much into being fearless. So how did they play into, you know, your, your level of confidence at a young age? Yeah, my parents were actually very trusting of me going climbing, my mom more so than my dad, which is maybe surprising because they didn't, have any background in climbing, but my mom really took it as a goal of hers to learn about climbing. And she actually, when I was seven, learned how to blame me and she would come to the gym. And from when I was seven till even today, not as often today, but (laughs) she would come and like be at the gym or be outside and be blaming me and supporting me. So she really took it on herself to learn about the safety precautions and all of the steps involved with like how to make climbing as safe as possible. And so that kind of level of involvement with my mom both fostered this really fun connection and like thing that we got to share. Like she was at every single competition driving me up and down the East coast of the U S for regional events um, to then flying around the world and coming into the world championships that I won and stuff like that. But my dad, I think he he struggled more with it. And in the book, I do go through this kind of tense relationship that I went through with him not understanding my sport and not taking it upon himself as much to understand it. I think that that was like an underlying tension that really fueled me because he was a businessman and he saw success as very like monetary oriented. And so going into this sport that didn't really have a background of that, I think that it did influence my approach and like me coming from a family that really stressed academics and like I needed to get straight A's and go to an Ivy League school and all of these kind of expectations that I just took as par for the course as long as I could go climbing. It kind of influenced the way that I approached even building my career within it. Yeah. So I've loved reading your book, by the way. I think it's so inspiring. And I cried yesterday on the plane reading some parts of it. But I I found that so fascinating hearing about your journey of, as you were just saying, like you went to school, you were doing both school and climbing and traveling around the world at such a young age, having these experiences climbing. I think you mentioned like climbing a... um, hotel casino in Japan, I think it wasn't then having sushi at the top, which sounded pretty amazing. But how was that for you just as a teen, really, and managing that that mental side? I'd love to get into what that looked like, because there's the mental side of getting onto the mountain or the wall, and then just the mental side of everything else going on and, and being an 18, 19 year old experiencing all of this. Yeah, the mental side is something that um, hit me later in life. Uh, when I started climbing as a young kid, everything was fun. You know, pressure was not really something that I felt. And then as I had early success, I had my first junior continental championship victory at 11, wow. my first sponsorship deal at 12. And at that time, were you just like taking that in stride and not kind of thinking anything of it? Was that amazing? Like, what was that like? It was, um, I think, my validating factor to my family that climbing could be a real sport. Yeah. I didn't even know like where that, except for my family not having a background in climbing, it was kind of like, look, I can be a professional too. And granted at 12, like I'm just getting free things. Like I'm not making a living from this sport yet. 
But as things just started to kind of like trickle in and and grow from there, pressure did too. And when I was 18, that was kind of the, my career was really paralleling the dawn of social media. And with that was really being exposed to trolls and, and internet forums and people attributing your success to other factors. And so as a teenage girl, that was really hard to navigate and something that I was almost maturing and making mistakes and learning within the judgment of a large set of people that I'll never meet. So I think that a lot of like the early day criticism, I internalized a lot. Like there was criticism over my weight and that became like even broadcast over forums. And that was in competition climbing. There's an unfortunate tie to disordered eating that I went through too. And, and then it really like catalyzed my interest in learning more about nutrition to get out of that really toxic cycle. But it was hard mentally because I think at that time, the comparative culture wasn't as strong as because people were all kind of new to social media and it wasn't yet like these curated versions of people that you're just like exposed to on a daily basis. But there was definitely like reading, oh yeah, Sasha did that climb because she's like so light or I could do that too if I was like, didn't get my period and stuff like that. And really mean comments, even from fellow colleagues within the sport who are individuals that I looked up to. And so I think that navigating especially within there's a strong bro culture within climbing too and having early success, but then having people see that as a negative was something that I learned early on that I needed to like have a very callous skin to navigate. Yeah, that must've been so difficult, especially hearing that from people, from colleagues and, and people in the community that you knew. What tips do you have? Certainly like the climate is different than, you know, when you were first there with social media, but what tips do you have? Or what were some of those things that really helped you to get out of that headspace and deal with what you were having to deal with at the time? Number one tip would be surrounding yourself by people that you allow opinions to matter because that was something that I was told probably in my like mid twenties was this concept of the allowing to matter versus like, we're all going to be exposed to people that emit positive energy and then people that emit really negative toxic energies. And you can't necessarily like be a hermit and not, you know, have those people in your life that you'll run into or see at events or whatever. But I think that that's even the point at which I started differentiating um, friendship to acquaintance to colleague. And there can almost be this like idea that climbing and outdoor sports in general are like this kumbaya culture where everyone like supports and is friends. And, and that's not what my experience has been at all. And I think that in any competitive realm, like that's not going to be the case, yeah. but accepting that and realizing that I had the power to choose who affected me. And that's just like an ongoing thing too. It's, I struggle still a lot with, you know, negative criticism and, and seeing or hearing about rumors. And I'm like, man, that's so not based in fact, I wish I could meet this person and tell them, but it's just going to be impossible to, to meet everyone that has an opinion about you and, and consider it in different ways. Yeah. I think also it's just one of those things that as you get older, I was just reading something about like just not caring what anyone thinks about you. And that's just something that happens naturally that you start to be like, I just don't care anymore. Like you can say anything and it's no sweat off my back. And so it's a good thing to to work on prior to getting older, but something that also comes with age too. It it totally does. I mean, I feel like as I got older and continue to kind of just learn and mature the uh the the close friend numbers maybe goes down but like those roots get deeper yeah and and i think that through the challenging times because i've had 
my fair share of like peaks, but also my fair share of extreme valleys. It's like you learn about the core of who people are through those times and like who's a loyal friend and who will stand up for you because that's a really important virtue to me. Absolutely. So talking about the other side of mental health and how that really helps to drive performance for you, I'd love to hear some of kind of that mental preparation, like what you do before and on. And are you just like, so how do you stay so present? How do you get through the night before a big climb or any sort of insights into what that looks like? Yeah. For my mental state, I practice visualization a lot. So when I'm working on a climb, often if it's a really challenging climb that I haven't put together yet, then I'll use visualization as a tool to really bring myself to that place and be like closing my eyes and envisioning what that active actual climbing is like and solving patterns within my mind of these different sequences that I haven't yet done with my physical body. So if you're doing that, sorry, quick question. If you're doing that for a first ascent that you've never done, ha- have you gone to that mountain and and looked to see where your pattern is going to be? Or what does that look like? Yeah, if it's something that I haven't done, and that's a really common thing, is like I'll prepare for an expedition and maybe it's six months out and I'm training and making this whole plan, but I've actually never even like tried it. So then I'm more visualizing like the act of climbing or just like imagining a situation that would be really hard for me and how would I confront it. But I think that in that practice, it's a little bit more challenging for sure. And breath work is something that I practice a lot. That's staying calm under pressure is really important in climbing because you'll be climbing and all of a sudden, if your head goes to a fear scenario, then it's about like, how do you bring your mind back to being present? And working on that present state can be challenging too, especially in like, even in today's day and age, like everything moves so fast and we're constantly multitasking. But on the wall, I feel like things are the most quiet for me. And I think that that's why I love it so much. It's like, really hard for me to concentrate in different aspects of life because I'm like full of distractions. (laughs) You're like all of us. (laughs) Yeah. On the wall, you can't really be like texting while using both your hands, (laughs) like scaling a rock face. But I did um, learn some of like the Wim Hof techniques through a Red Bull high performance camp. And that was really cool to me of like even controlling your body temperature and in cold conditions through breath work. So that's something that I'll practice. And then I guess the third pillar would be like the positive mindset attitude of the I can versus I can't or negative self-talk. That's been something that it's kind of a constant practice where I find like I'll get injured and then all of a sudden be telling myself all these mean things and have to bring myself out of that negative self-talk and start thinking of like, what can I control? Um, Where am I at? How I'm not seeing like if I'm not in a good state because I just came back from time off and I feel like I suck or whatever. Um, Being like, okay, well, this is the state that I'm at now, but I'm going to, you know, put in the hours and train and work towards changing that because we're constantly fluid. Do you have any specific things that you do to get out of that negative self-talk and back into a positive mindset? Do you journal? Do you, what practices do you do? Yeah, I journal a lot actually. And that was a big reason that I wanted to even write a book because writing's always been my way of processing my feelings. Um, and it it is what I went on to study at Columbia. It was creative nonfiction writing, but Uh, baths are really big for me. It's actually, I have like an extreme addiction to doing emails and looking at my phone. (laughs) So unplugging is something that I have to do. And like, it's something that's so simple and shouldn't be challenging at all, but I struggle with it. 
so even just, you know, plugging my phone in a different room when I go to bed and reading a physical book or a physical magazine has helped me with sleeping better. But I worked with a sleep doctor on a panel for South by Southwest a couple of years ago. And it was interesting to learn from him about like when we have a really stressful day the next day, like if I'm going to a big climb or whatever, and it's nerve wracking, accepting that you probably won't sleep your best that night, but recognizing that sleep is a pattern over time. So getting a good night's sleep during the week preceding that event, and then accepting that like you're going to be restless the day before that big moment was really informative to me and like helped me actually relax a little bit more the night of because it was like, all of this doesn't like fall on this one night. Like it's actually the practice that I've done over time to prepare. I think that's a great tip for everyone. I think even just small things, like you can never sleep well the night before you're traveling the next day. And it's like, you're putting so much pressure that you need to get a good night's sleep. And just to remember that, as you said, it's that the pattern of that sequence. So Hearing that also makes me think a little bit about reading one of your stories in the book about a big ascent that you did that took a month, which I, uh, or maybe it was on your Instagram, not on your book, but I was really surprised to hear that it takes that or it can take that long. And it's such a long journey. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that looks like, just like some of the practicality of sleeping and eating and going to the bathroom even. Yeah, those are really common questions. I think that the trip most recently in this last fall was to Pico de Europa in Spain. And I led an all-female expedition to go and try uh, what would then become the hardest route climbed by a team of women. But yeah, we were there for almost a month. And it's because individual parts of big wall climbs. So a big wall climb is made up of a compilation of single pitch climbs. And the way that you can think about it is like, a single pitch climb is a rope length climb and your rope is generally around going to bring you to a hundred foot sections of a wall. And so if you build a hundred section to a hundred section to a hundred section, then all of a sudden you're tackling a 2000 or 3000 foot climb over the course of either one day or several days. And what determines that is the difficulty of that climb. And so in climbing, we have a grade scale of, you know, five zero to five fifteen. And as you get closer to that higher end of like five fourteen, five fifteen, a lot of the sequences take time to really figure out and put together both physically and mentally how you can climb it clean. And climb it clean means essentially going from the bottom of the climb to the top without falling. And every time you fall, you have to go back to the beginning and start again. So that's why the time starts adding up because it's like you could be sending and send in climbing means to do something without falling. So like do it in your most optimal way and your foot slips and you're like 2000 feet up and then you have to go back to the beginning of that pitch and start climbing again. So over the course of that month before it, what I really like is like that organization that goes into, we're going to be hiking into this valley and we're going to be camping for a month. We need to plan all of our meals, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we need to um, like have, you know, all of our gear and everything comes down to a very granular level because what you have is what you have. So you start with your gear because that's your safety. And then meal planning is something that often like we'll use freeze dried meals for dinner, which I'm really into like health and nutrition and learning about food brands like Lyo, which is a female founded brand in Europe has um, owns their production line. And it's actually like good food for you because there's I try and in my daily life, avoid like refined sugar and and too many added preservatives and natural flavorings and stuff like that. So just learning about what's on the market. It is why I started my bar company, Sun Bars, because prior to that, I was always making my own bars in my blender. Even back in college, I was in my like freshman dorm, throwing together like dates and nuts and vegetable powders because everything that I tasted on the market just wasn't if it was healthy it tasted like paint and if it was uh tasty it was full of like sugar and syrups and chemicals 
And then I guess for going to the bathroom, um, that is, you know, going to pee. It's essentially if you're on a wall and you're a female, it's a little bit harder than a male, but you're essentially just like pulling your harness down and your pants and like hanging off the side of a cliff and <laughs> letting it go um, while staying tied in. But, you know, it's number two, I, you're normally going into a bag. And then putting that into like a poop tube, which is essentially a desensitized uh, or like you can't smell out of it. It's like keeps all of the scents. People do use sometimes like kitty litter to help like, you know, sock in the scent mm-hmm. and then you like close it off. And that's just really to like echo that belief of leave no trace. So like not leaving waste uh, if you're camping. It's kind of a similar mentality there. Sleeping on the wall, normally you're setting up like what's called a hammock. It's like a a technical hammock. It's called a portal ledge. And that would be you set it up on literally like the side of the cliff. And it's like a little cot that you're sleeping on and living on. And how is your sleep during that? Yeah. Well, sometimes you're just so exhausted. You actually sleep decently. Some of my best nights of sleep in Madagascar when I went on an expedition there were like, it'd be dark at 5 PM. And then there was no cell service. There's like nothing. And then the sun would rise at like 8 AM. So you're like, okay, well, there's nothing else to do. Um, then like maybe play cards, eat and go to sleep. But then I have had really horrible experiences on part of ledges where like, uh, I was on this trip in Brazil with a climbing partner and friend who's on the Red Bull team And we were climbing this region that basically never gets rain. And we were like trying to do a first ascent there. And the two nights that we were on the wall, it just had torrential down. And we didn't bring a cover or anything because you're like, oh, it's like the desert. Like it never rains. And those feelings of just like giving in to the reality. Like I was just in my sleeping bag, just getting poured on. (laughs) There's literally nothing to do. But just like be a puddle. Um, so those nights are not ideal. Yeah, that sounds like an experience to never forget. Yeah, no, it's true. Like, I remember that night yeah. more than I remember, like, the various other nights. Yeah, so I that's a, a good segue into, as you think about, you've had so many incredible accomplishments in your career and firsts and wins. How do you... And I'm sure it's changed over the years, but how do you manage through really enjoying the journey and the steps getting there and it not being like, here's a win. And at first that's super exciting. And then is it not as exciting along the way? Cause you've had so many of those accomplishments or how do you feel about that? Those moments? Yeah. I think that the moments that are the most moving to me are the ones that I struggled the most to achieve. And when I was competing and on the tail end of competing, I felt more pressure to win than I did to enjoy. And that was something that I had to overcome was like this expectation and almost like second place was so scary to me. And it was like total failure and failure is so much a part of like, life. But when you're so scared to fail, it can be so crippling. And that was something that I had to kind of embrace and overcome was just like being okay with showing up and finding out where I was at. My mentality when I was competing was always to train so hard and be at the level that even on a bad day, like I could still come home with a victory. But that's also not like a a approach that's sustainable, nor is it always going to be the way that reality ends up shaking out. Um, And I have had climbs where I failed and it's like really gut wrenching to be like, I just couldn't do this, this trip. Um, But then I've also had trips where I've returned and then done the climb much easier. And it's just like having that, um, that mentality of almost letting go and being okay in that moment to 
failure um, is when I have experienced success too. It's like that kind of balance of caring, but also letting go of like not caring so much where like sometimes that magic state happens. Yeah. Do you have any tips of getting into that space where you can allow failure? Because I think that that's such an important point of that's what gets us out our out of our comfort zones. Like anything in life is, I think, really letting yourself accept that you can fail and go after whatever that thing is in your life that you're desiring. But oftentimes, or most of the time, that's what stops us is that we have this fear of failure, either internally or externally, whether that's for ourselves or, you know, someone in our family that we don't want to fail for. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that for me, often I turn to this concept of if life kind of has this pattern of, you know, not dictating, but there's a a rhythm to the universe, in my opinion, and things happen for some sort of reason or another. And often I can't understand why and gone through really hard times and tried to associate like why, but turning into that belief of I'm going to let the, I'm going to take this chance and let the universe play its course. That's helped me with just kind of that faith in things happening for a reason. So I should go and give my best. And if it doesn't work out, then maybe it wasn't meant to be but I'll find a different path and I'll maybe find a new approach and course correct. So it's almost like not, not, not an active approach, but a, a surrender in some ways to the fact that you just can't always have control of what's meant to be. I love that. Do you ever read the book, The Surrender Experiment? No, I haven't. You got to read it. I can't think of who the author is right now, but I think you would love it. I would say that through my experiences and in climbing, the the spirituality of these components has become pretty important for me and um, just helps to help navigate through hard times, but also like not take for granted good times too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to jump on over to Senbar, which you touched on and where that came from. Tell us a little bit more about the bars and why they're so delicious. Yeah, sure. Well, I um I am like a huge fan of you as an entrepreneur and your products. So, Senbar is for me, it was a long-term passion as always making my own bars, as I said earlier, and not having something on the market that I trusted and could have. So I started making it myself. And then I met my co-founder, Ariane Jones, at at a a international women's forum conference that we were both at as pro athletes getting into the business space. And I told her about my idea and she's, her background is a holistic uh, nutritionist and chef. And so together we created this bar and we launched it actually last year. I started building the blocks. I had registered the name Send Bars in 2012, but I was constantly on the go. I was in college. I was living my professional climbing career. And then I was diagnosed with double hip reconstruction surgery. So that was when I really like turned to founding the business and writing this book as my purpose. And the bars are made of real whole food. So I think that that's like, The most important thing is I just believe that what we put in our bodies should not be chemically produced or preserved. Um, We have no natural flavorings. We're a date and nut base and we integrated greens and superfoods. So we have our perform line and we have our recover line and all of it. We take very seriously like where we get our ingredients from, that they're organic, that um, we work with a great family farm with our base, which are dates. And so it's not like a date sugar, it's an actual whole date that we use as our base. And then we integrate ashwagandha and chaga for our recover line and lion's mane and cordyceps, which are just medicinal mushrooms. And they have all these amazing properties like chaga's highest concentrated food on the planet for antioxidants. So it's like really great for uh, fighting inflammation, regulating your adrenals and all this language is, to me, it was something that I've learned over the course of being a pro athlete and seeing like 
how nutrition plays a role in my performance, but also my recovery. Um, and then just learning more about, I have celiac disease. So making sure that I have food that's gluten-free has always been something that I've faced as difficult to do while traveling. So that's why I'd always like bring my own food. And I just really believe that healthy food should taste good. And that's like how you can get more people eating and feeling themselves properly. It's like by introducing products that actually are like what you'd want to eat. So that was a big ethos for my approach. And I love that you're using greens because I feel like that in particular can be so hard, especially when traveling that you can't get. And so having that within the bars too, I think is really cool and something that I would love personally. That came from being on expeditions in remote places where like, you're not going to be lugging a head (laughs) up the wall and your regulatory system needs fiber and greens. Uh, So it was like, how do we get a full serving of greens into a bar without tasting the greens? But then, you know, for lunch on an expedition, like I'll eat a bar or two while I'm moving. And sometimes like three bars if I'm really active and just then you want to be able to go to the bathroom (laughs) (laughs) and put it back in that tube. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So what is when you're not on the wall, what is a regular day of of your eating look like kind of talk about your nutrition and how that fuels you. Yeah. My days, they really depend. Like if I'm home in Boulder, I like to start my days with a liter of water often with lemon in it, and then I'll make a smoothie or I have Greek yogurt and purely Elizabeth. Do you have a favorite protein powder that you put in your smoothie? I do. I use the Four Sigmatics um, protein blend. I really like it because it's adaptogenic and plant-based. I eat probably like an 80% um, plant-based diet. And then I really like, you know, well-sourced protein that comes from fish and chicken and meat. So yeah, start the day with a pretty hearty smoothie. I'll put like greens and fruit and protein powder, collagen, chia seeds, hemp seeds, and then like a nut butter. I like just going to Whole Foods and getting the ones that like will be made where you can like hold down the pump. Yep. And then an almond cow where I'll normally make my own plant-based milk or I'll put in oat milk if I'm lazy. For lunch and dinner, I'm normally emphasizing just that triad on your plate of like having protein, having a carb, especially on my like higher training days. If I'm outside climbing, then I'll rely on scent bars, honestly, because it's just like a dense nutrition packed formula that I can trust. But um, if I'm home, like I will eat, you know, I'll cook myself a meal. And then for dinner, I would say that since I started really eliminating refined sugar, when I was injured, my taste buds have changed quite a bit that I've noticed that I used to have a really, really prevalent sweet tooth. And now I'm more like love salt. Like I really like snacking on granola or trail mix and chips. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, like Siete chips. I'm obsessed. Yeah. If if I'm having dessert, like I like to just make homemade treats. Like recently I made a, um, a cobbler out of rhubarb that I got. Turn to your page for like recipe inspiration. It really depends. But I would say the consistent thing is like as an athlete and also as a woman, like it's really important to emphasize protein. Yeah. And then also calcium rich foods and iron rich foods. How about any supplements that you take? I actually try and do a largely food forward diet. So I don't take any supplements except for I do mix in athletic greens in the morning. I do athletic greens too. Yeah. I I think that their product first, I actually didn't like the taste and now I like it. I think that I've adapted. Me too. It took a week and I was like, what's everyone talking about this athletic greens? Like, are they all just being paid to do this? And that's why everyone talks about it. But then it turned out that now I like can't start my morning without it. Yeah. It's just like back to the conversation of greens. It's nice to just like be sure that you got greens in. I'll like order from sweet green sometimes and stuff like that for lunch or dinner. And I feel like, or flower child in Boulder. I like that spot too. Yeah. I was going to say, what's your favorite restaurant in Boulder? I, for sushi, I love blowfish. 
I really like black belly and oak. Yeah. There's so many options across the cuisines, but I mean, I guess like Frosca is always like really great cocktails. And then their neighbor pizza restaurants got a really oh, good. That's gluten. so good. Yeah. They have the best gluten-free crust, I think. I know. I'm like always have to double check that it's gluten-free. Cause I'm like, do I, do I get to taste this good? of <laughs> Totally. All right. We're going to move to some rapid fire Q and a. Favorite wellness hack. Ooh, lemon water in the morning. That, I don't know if that came to you. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Three things that you're currently loving. It could be a product show. Um, Currently loving. Oh gosh. Uh, okay. Rapid fire. I really like the Four Sigmatics protein blend. That's really great. I really liked the show, The Summer I Turned Pretty. It was like a guilty indulgence. It was like, <laughs> like, yeah, I was like, I'm creepy. Like, I'm way older than these. <laughs> okay. And then I really love Epsom salt baths. Yeah, just like tuning out in the end of my day. And now that it's starting to get a little bit more chilly, like they're coming back. And so I'm currently into them. Favorite words to live by? Do your best. A favorite book or podcast for growth? Oh, I love Brene Brown. I think all of her books have been really incredible for me. And the whole concept of daring greatly um, speaks to me a lot. What's your morning routine? Morning routine, I always emphasize having at least eight hours of sleep. Like I'm someone who really takes sleep seriously. I wake up, drink a liter of water, have some uh, shaker of athletic greens, make a smoothie. And I actually work more in the mornings and like to chop up my day by having like a big break from my training hours, kind of midday. And then I'll go back to like finish up things that I have later in the day. And since I started a company, it's kind of been like a change for me from being like solely a professional athlete while doing these other, like, you know, working with nonprofits and stuff like that to now having daily meetings and uh, all of the good fun things that come with basically giving yourself an office job. But I like that morning routine of working. And so do you still do that now that you have meetings? Do you still do that work in the morning and then have the chunk in the afternoon or midday for working out. Yeah. And I will say that like the days that I feel the most nourished are, and I didn't do it today. My husband's actually walking our dog, but waking up and being on Sunitas, which is our house is on Sunitas and like just going and like having nature exposure early is mm-hmm. really and he's just always so happy. Like I, I feel like the energy of a dog and how excited they are to be like outside with you is my favorite way to really start the day. Um, so yeah, totally. I agree. And for people who don't know, Sanitas is a mountain right here in Boulder in town. I love starting my day that way too. So anyone who comes to Boulder, who comes to visit, go there and start your day on that hike. We'll go on a morning hike and then I can ask you all of my questions. Totally. We got to do it. Most memorable mountain that you've climbed. Ooh, I made a lot of mistakes and I learned a lot from it, but probably the North face of the Eiger. Where's that? It's in Switzerland. Okay. Yeah. Popularly known as the murder wall. Why is it called the murder wall? Because people fall. There've been a lot of accidents on it. And then it was kind of like glorified through um, books like White Spider and Clint Eastwood had a movie called, I think Clint Eastwood's with Iger Sanctions. There's a lot of kind of like mythical legend around it, but it was kind of a a mountain that was one of my um, first walls that I was climbing that I was kind of like like hitting above my pay grade, I guess. I don't know. I think I just butchered that same, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I learned a lot from like the mistakes and through the whole process. And we did do a, um, I did a first female scent on it, but it was not a trip that I look back as like this big victory, but more of just like this big learning curve. Amazing. What is your current workout routine? 
Oh, it really depends on the day. So I have um, strength oriented days and I have like more cardio cross training and endurance, but I do have a training center at my house, which has a tread wall, which is essentially a vertical wall. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, and then systems boards. So they're for bouldering, like kilter board and a moon board for the climbers out there. And for the non-climbers, it's essentially boards that are hooked up to Bluetooth systems. So I can use my phone and my coach could be in Europe and telling me which exact climbs to use. And then the holds illuminate through um, LEDs. But I do a lot of, of grip strength training. I do about an hour of cardio per day. I actually just signed up for my first half Ironman. Congratulations. Yeah, it'll be in Panama. And then I'm going to climb Aconcagua in January. So, but my nearest goal is in Yosemite in November. So really training for that will be a mix of like climbing specific training. And that will be going outside for long hours of a day, but also being in the gym, working on like core and upper body lifting, lower body explosivity and cardio. Amazing. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Eating well and getting a good night's sleep. I guess that's two, but they're both important. We'll give you two. All right. In closing, well, you, you touched on some things that you're working on, but anything else we haven't touched on what's next for you and where can everybody find your bars and your book coming out and all those good things? Yeah. So the book comes out September 26th and you can buy it anywhere you can buy books. Boulder Bookstore, I have the link in my profile, which is Sasha D. Julian across Instagram, Twitter, or I guess X and TikTok um, and threads. But I pre-signed the books there. So if you want to sign copy, order from that link or, um, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, St. Martin's Press. Um, upcoming beyond the book, I have a goal in Yosemite in November. Um, I kind of touched on some of the other things and then send bars. You can buy them online is nationwide sendbars.com. And then we're in some climbing gyms. I guess it's like over 40 retail locations across the country, but Amazon too, we're available. Sendbars.com is probably the easiest. Amazing, Sasha. Thank you so much for your time today. This was so much fun to hear your story. It's incredible. And so nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that we're both in Boulder. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.